0: Welcome to the Personal Injury Marketing Minute, where we quickly cover the hot topics in the legal marketing world. I'm your host, Lindsay Busfield. Typically, people cringe when they hear the term nursing home. So many of us have horror stories of loved ones being put in a home as they get older and can no longer live independently. Unfortunately, the horrible conditions brought to light within many nursing homes have lent credibility to the awful stereotypes. Within the personal injury community, these stories not only evoke a heartfelt sympathy, but also a legal curiosity. We've spoken with several personal injury lawyers as they are evaluating whether to start representing nursing home abuse victims. Tom Wagstaff is an attorney in Kansas City who has secured millions for the victims and families of nursing home abuse. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me, I appreciate it.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice.
1: You bet. So again, my name is Tom Wagstaff, Jr. Uh, my office is law office of Tom Wagstaff, Jr. And we're located in the Kansas City, Missouri metropolitan area. Exactly, specifically we're in Overland Park, Kansas. So we're just across the state line. But I've been doing uh, cases against long-term care facilities, nursing home facilities for for most of my practice. So that would be uh, just over 25 years. Um, I handle those cases primarily in Kansas, the state of Kansas, state of Missouri, state of Arkansas where I'm licensed, Uh, but I've also handled them in Arizona, and and I've handled cases in seven or eight other states as well. Um, uh, About 65 to 70 percent of my practice would be in this long-term care area, nursing home care area. The, The remaining portion would be personal injury, wrongful death. Um, in other areas and some class action work. So that's a little bit about me, but I look forward to talking with you today.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And clearly a lot of attorneys um, who are in the personal injury field take on most of the the auto accident cases, there's slip and falls, but what got you interested in nursing home abuse cases?
1: So when I first started practicing, and like I said, that was 26, 27 years ago, I actually, in the first year or so of my practice, had an opportunity to defend a nursing home in the Kansas City area. And I enjoyed doing that, but I realized that where my heart was, was representing the families. And and, um, I kind of saw how it worked, saw some of the injustices, saw how vulnerable these residents are and, and the families as well. And so after that experience, uh, or shortly thereafter, I I, I made the decision uh, to, to start representing the victims and the injured parties in these cases.
0: And we've used the terms nursing home abuse, uh, but also like the term nursing home versus long-term uh, care facility. So let's start with some clarification on the term nursing home. What are the different types of facilities that tend to get lumped into the term nursing home?
1: Right. So that is a term that's kind of casually used. Um, so, so I think the bigger overarching term is long-term care facilities. I think within that, you have what we traditionally think of as the, the nursing home, which is a skilled uh, nursing home facility. And that's, that's going to have a long-term care component to it uh, where, where the resident isn't going anywhere. They're staying there for the rest of their life and they're getting skilled nursing care around the clock. And that facility is also gonna have a rehab component to it they their short-term stay there, where they're coming back to rehab. Maybe they had a urinary tract infection and they're having mobility issues, weaknesses, and they can't walk, they're not safe to ambulate. So they'll stay there for two, three weeks and get some physical therapy, occupational therapy. So that's your skilled nursing facility. Uh, and that's kind of what we think of most of the time. Then you have your assisted living facility, uh, then, and within an assisted living facility now, oftentimes you see what's called memory care units. And, and memory care units really aren't much different than, a, than what I would call an Alzheimer's lockdown unit that you'd see at a skilled nursing facility. It's just a memory care unit and it's at an assisted living facility. I, besides an assisted living facility, you'd see what's called a residential care facility. You'd see an independent living facility. All of these kind of facilities have different acuity levels. The needs of the residents are different. Obviously, the higher acuity people are going to be in the skilled nursing facility. The lowest acuity people, the less needy people are going to be in an independent living facility. Um, and, and each of these facilities is governed um, primarily at the state level by different regulations and at the federal level. Um, There's going to be statutes and regulations that govern each of these independent of themselves. Um, And there's going to be different licensure requirements for each of these facilities, different staffing requirements for each of these uh, facilities as well.
0: And, I mean, clearly there are several types of facilities out there based on um, the individual's needs. Uh, But which types of facilities are notoriously the worst for these abuse cases?
1: So most of the cases in my experience pertain to the skilled nursing facilities which are the true nursing homes even though i think we're seeing more and more cases develop against assisted living facilities uh, in part because uh, the population's choosing right or right wrong or indifferent to stay in assisted living facilities when maybe they shouldn't be staying in assisted living facilities You also have memory care units in the assisted living facilities now. So I think there's more litigation going towards the assisted living facilities for those reasons. But at the same time, I think what we still see is most of it against the the true nursing home, against the skilled nursing home facilities. Within that, what I see is you have some skilled nursing homes that are owned by Fortune 500 companies. Then you have some that are owned by regional operators. And then you have some that are owned by mom and pops, uh, where the mom and pop owner is going to have maybe one or two facilities. The regional operator is going to be somebody that lives in the state um, that maybe owns anywhere from 30, 40 or 50 facilities in the state. Pretty big operation. Then the Fortune 500 companies are going to be the ones, uh, you know, like a Life Care Center of America um, that own three, 400 facilities across the country. Um, you, You can get. Good care, you can get bad care at any of these facilities. The, the ones, the area where I see uh, the most corners cut uh, is in that middle tier of, of the skilled nursing homes where you have the regional operators. Um, they, they For some reason, um, they seem to cut corners. They seem to not staff the facilities as well. Uh, they seem to be um, focused more on driving the profit than driving the care.
0: And that can be extremely dangerous, obviously, when they are not looking to prioritize the the care of their residents first. Um, you know, we we see it in so many industries where people are not staffing appropriately and the entire point gets missed of having the business. Um, and it's just it's so focused on on driving up the profits. Um, and when that happens, what types of injuries are some of the most common that that you see in those cases?
1: So I'd say kind of the hallmark injuries that I see uh, a large majority of the time are going to be uh, pressure sores, um, which also are referred to as decubitus ulcers or bed sores. And with those pressure sores, most of the time, the ones that turn into litigation are going to be stage three or stage four pressure sores. So a stage three pressure sore kind of uh, casually speaking, is going to be a pressure sore that gets down into the muscle, gets down into that level of tissue. Mm-hmm. Stage four is going to get down where you see the bone. Um, uh, uh, and so those are the pressure sores that usually get litigated. Uh, sometimes the stage one and the stage two pressure sores do. Um, and then there's going to be unstageable pressure sores where you have a layer of necrotic tissue on the top or, or dead tissue and, um, and those are gonna get litigated as well. The problem with pressure sores, uh, or, or what comes of pressure sores, is uh, they get infected, they, they cause the body to weaken, and they eventually lead to sepsis and, and organ failure and death. So we see that a lot. We also see, um, as you'd expect, broken hips, uh, falls and broken hips, and a subsequent death. And it's pretty well known that when uh, an elderly person Uh, falls and has a significant fracture, like a broken hip, that the morbidity and mortality rate increases dramatically. Then we see uh, brain bleeds. So a subarachnoid hemorrhage or a subdural hematoma. Um, Again, those oftentimes come from falls where a resident falls and hits their head on the floor or on a cabinet. And and, um, so we see those injuries as well. And then uh, infection and sepsis. And so, again, that can come from a pressure sore, uh, but that can also come from like a urinary tract infection or an open wound. And again, sepsis, as as you probably know, is when a localized infection becomes systemic. So the local infection, for example, in the urinary tract gets into the bloodstream and it travels throughout the body and then it becomes systemic across the body and it ultimately leads to organ failure and death. So I'd say those four areas we see, uh, that's where we see quite a bit. Of cases, there's some other areas as well, but those are probably the four big ones.
0: Yeah, I, w- I could see so many different circumstances where um, <clears throat> victims could uh, be, yes, you know, succumb to s- such injuries. Um, I'm sure that there are a lot of times that the families, you know, probably mostly of the deceased victims, um, reach out to you and are, yeah, you know, presenting the case, saying, you know, "My, um, my loved one was injured and and they died." Um, what is the threshold where you would take on a case with, with those types of injuries? If they come to you and say, you know, my, my grandfather, or my father, um, you know, had bed sores and then he died, you know, clearly that's not necessarily leading to a, a wrongful death case. Um, so when you are evaluating the different injuries, at what point would you be willing to take on a case?
1: So that is a good question. And some of the things I look for, one, I think it's important in any case, but, but since we're talking about these types of cases, it holds true as well, um, is to have good clients, good family. And what do I mean by that? In, in the context of a, of a long-term care case, uh, family members, uh, if it's a wrongful death case that were involved, that went to the nursing home that that participated in care plan meetings that interacted with staff um, that before anything bad happened were already involved were already doing their job likable people trustworthy people i think that's important Uh, another another piece to the evaluation is is the conduct Uh, you 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 would you really want the case to be about the conduct and not about medicine and so uh, it's important to identify the conduct, the event. So the conduct is one what happened? What's the event? Um, you know, if somebody fell, how did they fall? If somebody got a pressure sore, how did they get the pressure sore? Um, and, and then once you figure out what the event was, was the conduct pretty inappropriate? Was the conduct pretty bad? Was the conduct pretty egregious? It may not be, it, it probably won't be punitive, but will it get people excited? Um, and I look for a tangible injury. I, I think it, it's, uh, and what I mean by that is, um, uh, you're not going to have economic damages for the most part in these cases. Uh, you may at times, depending on the case, uh, but there's not many lost income. Uh, there may or may not be uh, medical expenses that you're claiming. There may or may not be. So, so. I look for a tangible physical injury, such as a stage four pressure sore with pictures, um, a, a, a brain bleed uh, with pictures, um, broken hips, broken legs, uh, things that people understand, things that people get, and um, so th- so that's another item I look for. And then and then another thing I look for when I'm evaluating these cases is what's the facility like, uh, and you're able to do some. Research on that and learn about the facility. How are they rated by CMS? Uh, Have they had any complaints brought against them before? Uh, just, Just generally speaking, is this a good facility? Is this a bad facility? Historically. So those are the things I look at.
0: Yeah. Those sound like very important factors to evaluate. And, you know, starting with the people that you're working with, that can always be a, a huge factor re- regardless of the type of case. <laughs> it, it, it definitely helps to be working with good people. <laughs> Absolutely. And so when somebody is injured um, or if there's, you know, a, a wrongful death, um, what is the typical timeline for a nursing home abuse case?
1: Yeah. So um, like any case, it depends. But I I think when you go into it, uh, you need to plan on it lasting uh, a year and a half to two years uh, from file date to trial date. Um, I think on average, that's probably a safe bet.
0: Okay. That's, that's good to know. I know that there, you know, in the personal injury world, there are some accident cases that settle really quickly. Some can go on to court and take a lot longer. Um, And yeah, in my,
1: in my experience, I, I, it's, it's um, that sometimes they will get resolved early, but um, I think most of them do not.
0: Right. These ones just tend to take a little bit longer by, by nature. And I mean, we've talked to, on a couple of points of how nursing home abuse cases are different from other types of personal injury cases, like car accident cases. Um, what are some other ways that you see um, them being different from those typical personal injury cases?
1: Yeah. So, um, so the damage model is different, and what I mean by that is, and this this again is true for other cases as well but i think it's more true it's highlighted in this context is the damage model you're not going to have lost income you're not going to you know if the if the medical bills are small you're not going to claim them so in most of these cases uh, these most of them are going to be wrongful death cases in most of these cases you're not going to have an economic damage model so the, the damage models in large part is gonna be driven by the non-economics and by the conduct. And so I think that's different. And then um, these cases also are gonna be uh, uh, controlled to some extent by regulations. You know, in, in a lot of medical malpractice cases, that's not true. In a lot of auto cases, maybe, maybe not, but there's gonna be regulations at the state and the federal level that at least touch on some of the issues. Um, These cases, uh, I call them a case within a case. Sometimes these cases will turn into that, where you have the underlying pressure sore case, which starts everything, or the underlying fall case, broken hip case, that starts everything. And then um, you will learn during the course of discovery that that fall happened because the facility wasn't staffed. And so then you get into that. That's the case within the case. So uh, th- you'll get into uh, the PPD, the patient per day staffing ratio, which makes it unique, makes it different. Um, the records are different. The records in a nursing home or a long-term care facility, uh, you know, th- the way the records are organized in an assisted living case is different than in a skilled nursing home case. They have different records. They're organized differently. And, and for those of us that have done medical malpractice over the years or who do auto accidents and see medical records, uh, they're organized differently. There's different types of records than you would see at a hospital or at a doctor's office, like a minimum data set, uh, which is a great tool uh, for lawyers to use in a nursing home case because it's a federally required assessment that's pretty extensive, that's done quarterly, it's done when there's a change in condition, it's done when there's an admission, it's done, done when there's a discharge. So the records are different and you just kind of need to get used to them. And, and like I said earlier, I think these cases in large part are based on conduct, not on the medicine.
0: Right. And you would think that with the, with the medical records being so accessible there, at least that part is organized, but investigating the, the conduct piece can be a lot more time intensive and yeah. involve some creativity as well.
1: And there was one other type of case I didn't touch on, and I should have earlier, and I apologize for it. But I, I talked about pressure sores. I talked about broken hips and, and falls and brain bleeds and sepsis. But another area that I see uh, as well is elopements. And that's that's when uh, residents uh, get out, leave, wander away from from the facility unattended to. Um, you know they may a resident may walk out a, an exit door that should have been locked, it should have been alarmed or a resident may walk out through the front door when there's nobody there in the lobby. And what happens in those kids situations uh, is you know, I've had those cases where a resident will wander away, elope, and he's found the next day in a creek, face down, and he's drowned to death. Or I had a case where a resident wandered out, um, left a residential care facility, and and wandered out in the middle of the night into a lake, and she drowned to death. Uh, I had another case where a lady left an assisted living facility through an unlocked door that was alarmed but she was found 12 days later and she had, she was, um, she was deceased. So I I do see those elopement cases and those are cases that, uh, listen, the best thing I can say about those cases is it shouldn't happen.
0: Absolutely. And I know that, you know, there are short staff, there are people that are stretched thin and there could be a case where somebody even sees a resident leave. Um, mm-hmm. and even though they see them leave, they're on their way to another patient and they have you know, split priorities. You know, what do I take care of right now? And I would imagine that this is particularly dangerous in the memory care facilities, uh, as well.
1: It is. And I actually just got finished with a case down in, uh, Arkansas where, um, that that exact thing happened where a lady was admitted uh to an assisted living facility and she'd only been there for three hours and she went out uh an exit door that was in the back of the facility by the memory care unit and the alarm sounded and a a staff member uh, saw her talked to her did not realize she was a resident and let her go Wow. And then, unfortunately, she was found and she she passed away in the woods.
0: Ugh, she, that's she, awful.
1: She she I think she ended up passing away from uh, heat exhaustion. Mm. You no, know, they're they're super sad cases.
0: Of of course they are, and you know it's a it's a community, and these these victims are part of a community that are underserved, mm-hmm. and they need help and they need to make sure that they are in, um, a care facility that is actually going to have their best interests at heart because they can't always advocate for themselves, whether it's because of a physical disability, um, or whether they, you know, have Alzheimer's or dementia or something that keeps them from being able to protect themselves, which is why they're here to begin with. And I think that's what pulls at everybody's heartstrings, um, you know, whether, you know, it, it results in, in wrongful death or just a really excruciatingly painful experience that they could not have avoided even with their best efforts. Uh, yeah, that's that makes these so so difficult to to hear about. Um, and you know, and as you were saying, you know, with these cases, you have you know fewer economic damages um, than you would necessarily in a personal injury case, and it relies more on the non-economic damages. Um, and so, does that impact the case value compared uh, comparing nursing home or long term uh, facilities to a traditional personal injury case?
1: I don't think it should, in my experience, it does not, but uh, the defendant will try to suggest that it does. I just think it's a different damage model. Uh, I don't think it impacts overall value, but I think the way you get to uh, a number that your client is comfortable with uh, or that a jury awards uh, is 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 a different path. And, and so you have to develop, uh, you really have to develop the non-economic piece through evidence the pain and suffering um and you have to develop um, not only that but uh, the likability of the family um and the conduct and and so uh, you you know the the more you can develop the bad conduct uh, not necessarily punitive conduct but just the the, the, the bad conduct, how it was so obviously bad, how it lacked the caring piece, um, then I that's the model. And it's different than your your case where you develop economic damages.
0: Right. Absolutely. And, um, so,
1: and so if you're not used to it, you, you may not be comfortable doing it because it is a lot different. I mean, so many of us are used to developing, okay, we got non-economic damages. Okay, we got economic damages. This is how, how it works. This is the model. This is what it's worth. That that thought process doesn't apply to long-term care facility cases.
0: Right. It's not as easy as looking at the police report and going, here's a lost income and uh, all of the different medical bills that go into that piece. It's a very different model uh, looking at uh, you know, prioritizing, putting more of an emphasis on those non-economic uh, damages. Uh, and, you know, and that's you know, one perspective to look at it as you are evaluating whether or not to take on these um, long-term care facility cases, nursing home abuse cases. Uh, and if an attorney does decide that they want to start pursuing these, um, what do you think is the best way to connect with victims and their families from a marketing perspective to start attracting some of these cases?
1: um I, I just had a quick thought though too on on when on the last question when you were asking me about um the, the value of these cases you also need to take it and every state's different right but like like Arkansas where I litigate cases has no damage caps Missouri and Kansas where I often litigate cases Missouri has damage caps Kansas yes and no Kansas uh, on some of the cases, not capped. Some of it may be capped. So when, when you're looking at your damages in a long-term care case, I strongly suggest that whatever state you're in, you, you look at the laws that govern how much you can recover.
0: That's an excellent point. Yeah, it, it kind of falls into the same vein of being aware of insurance caps um, yeah. on a traditional personal injury case. That is something to make sure you research and be aware of. <laughs>
1: and i apologize i don't think i answered your question but i just had that thought in my mind
0: no that's that's a great point i'm really glad that that you interjected that
1: um so i think what was your question to me uh,
0: the next question that i had for you was about attracting some of these cases so how is it that you're you're meeting um with the families of the nursing home um uh, victims um and from a marketing perspective what have you found to be the most effective way
1: well for me uh you can't beat experience and and so um most of my clients come to me from referrals um just because I've had an opportunity to uh do this for so long um so uh, I, I think experience and hard work is the best way to get them um but um i i do know that i mean that's the best thing i can say on that it's i'm not I wish I had the magic wand and could tell you the best way to get them from a marketing standpoint. But but the way I find my way into most of these cases is, is based upon former clients referring them to me or from other lawyers who don't necessarily handle this type of case and sending it my way to look at it.
0: Well, and that's actually a, a great response because it gives um, a little bit of insight in the context of this, where people are coming to you because they feel violated. They feel like the safety of their loved ones has been violated, yeah. and they are le- they're wanting to lean on somebody that they can trust. And there's no better person that you can trust than you know, a referral um, from somebody else who's been through this with their family member. And you know, if I have a friend who lost their grandmother in a nursing home abuse case and it just happened to me, I'm going to want to lean on somebody who had a great experience um, with with an attorney um, mm-hmm. who represented this case successfully. So I think in certain um, legal markets, um, certain sectors, Word of mouth referrals can be absolutely the best way to generate new business.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and so, and thinking through, you know, final thoughts. What other tips can you give to a personal injury lawyer who's on the fence with taking on these types of cases?
1: You know, I'd say going back to what you asked me earlier, I'd say if you're if you're thinking about taking on these kind of cases, I think you need to be comfortable. With the fact that it's a different damage model Uh, i think you you need to understand uh how to evaluate them which you know i talked about good clients good family bad conduct tangible injury bad facility you know and and i would uh do my research on the nursing home or the assisted living care facility Um, i think if you keep all those things in mind and you're comfortable with that um I think you'll do just fine, um, but but the way you look at these cases is much different than how you look at an auto case or look at a medical malpractice case, um, and, and they are um, they can be uh, there could you know deposition intensive, meaning oftentimes there's there's a lot of depositions, uh, so it's it's not these aren't going to be cases where you have. Uh, two or three or four or five depositions and that's it most of the time it's 10 or more um, and there's going to be experts involved um, usually a nurse usually uh, a, a doctor expert uh, sometimes a staffing expert so usually these cases are going to have anywhere from two to three experts um, so if, if you keep all that in mind and, and, and you you're comfortable with all that i think you'll do fine
0: Well, great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. And if any of our listeners want to learn uh, more about Tom's practice, I will be sure to put a link to his website on the transcript.
1: Thanks so much. I really have enjoyed it. I appreciate your time as well. Thanks.